the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. It is, of course, the program where we take your calls and answer your questions about the things you care the most about. Questions about God and the historical Jesus, questions about the Bible, questions about worldviews and world religions. We do talk about history, and we do talk about prophecy, and we do talk about headlines and current events. And it's impossible to ignore some of the headlines and the uh, the current events, including Pete Buttigieg, who is the transportation energy, you know, the transportation secretary. And basically, he's telling America that we should get used to crushing gas prices until we achieve clean energy independence. In other words, uh, last month, Mayor Pete made headlines when he said, in all seriousness, that the obvious solution for dealing with insanely high gas prices is go buy an electric vehicle. Not making it up. But maybe Mayor Pete doesn't realize that, well, most of us can't afford to buy a new car at all let alone an uh, an electric vehicle that costs roughly $10,000 more, according to Kelly Blue Book. He has basically made the statement, hey, we're going to have wild price hikes until we achieve energy independence because that's what we're looking for. Not making this up. Buttigieg, quote, Until we achieve a form of energy independence that is based on clean energy, get used to the price hikes. Well, what if people aren't used to the price hikes? And and what if the people go, hey, you know what? I am going to um, elect someone who has a sensible energy policy. Jim, I, I, I think that that I like everything about Joe Biden except for all of his domestic policies and all of his foreign policies. And that sort of sums up my position. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. It's 303-873-1935. And, uh, We've got other headlines that I want to get to. Um, But back to this idea about um, lost books of the Bible, which, which I love talking about. Um, There's a, there's a corollary um, issue about, again, you know, who decided which books are going to be in, what was the criteria that was used in determining the books which belonged in the Bible. And I indicated to the earlier caller 
that there was a kind of authorship issue. Was this written by an apostle or the close companion of of an apostle? So there had to be a, the sort of stamp of prophetic approval, if you will, for a book to be considered canonical. That means within the the standard. The, the word canon just means measure. So for a book to be considered canonical or that which could be measured as being true, it had to have been written by a prophet or apostle or by one who had been had a special relationship, like Mark to Peter or Luke to Paul. Only those who witnessed the events or who had recorded eyewitness testimony could have their writings considered as Holy Scripture. But then there was the witness of the Holy Spirit as an aid for people understanding which books belonged in the canon and which did not. Clark Pinnock, before he went off the rails in his book, Biblical Revelation, wrote, quote, the Spirit did not reveal a list of inspired books, but left their recognition to a historical process in which life was active. God's people learned to distinguish wheat from chaff, gold from gravel, as he worked in their hearts, unquote. So there had to be acceptance by the people of God. In John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus said, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things which I said to you. So we have a promise of Jesus that his disciples would be given total recall by the Holy Spirit of the things he said and did. These same disciples either wrote the New Testament books or had input into which books were accepted as Scripture. Any book that claimed canonical status but diverted or did not—what's the word I'm looking for— that that they diverted from the truth or they they left the truth about the life of Jesus would have immediately been rejected by Jesus's own disciples who were eyewitnesses of the New Testament events. So the acceptance of God's people is an important criteria for the book to be considered canonical. So written by an apostle or a close companion, it had to be true. The contents had to be true, and if they were found to be false, they were rejected. And so they had to be widely, widely used uh, within the church. 303-873-1935, that's the number if you want to join me on the program. Let's see who's up. Jose, welcome to the program. Hermano Chino, Dios te bendiga. Adios lo bendiga, señor. Me gusta mucho tu show. Thank you. <laughs> Muchas gracias. De nada. Gracias por hablar español. Y quiero oración por mi país, El Salvador. El Salvador. You, you, sí. Have you ever, did you ever think that a country 
could have a more beautiful name than El Salvador, a country named after the Savior. Yes, that's why we we had um, uh, a lot of uh, attacks from the devil just because the name, the Savior, and then um, the Christian community is growing. But now we have a awful attack from gangs, gang members, right? Killing, killing innocent people. And I've been praying for my country, but I would like to ask to everybody to praise uh, God, give wisdom to the president and Najib Bukele, so that he can handle the situation. It, it, he's he's in control right now, and. A lot of the army and uh, national police—they're looking for these bad guys. And in seven days, they arrest more than four thousand member gang members. Wow! And but uh, last yep. weekend, the gang members killed about ninety people, innocent people, on the streets of El Salvador. Yeah, see, and this goes largely unreported. Obviously, 11 people are killed in Sacramento. We get the news. Um, People are killed in Israel. We get the news. But this Mm -hmm. kind of violence is often ignored. But we will continue to pray for you and for El Salvador and that God in his grace and his mercy will have mercy on this land and its people and that the gospel will be preached and believed. In Jesus' yes. name, amen. Yes. Jose, gracias y bendiciones. Igualmente, sí, Gino. God bless you. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. And, you know, our heart breaks for um, the pain and the suffering that we see in this great big world. Um, El Salvador ranks 124th among the 189 countries in the Human Development Index. There is high rates of poverty, gang-related violent crime. Um, El, El Salvador is the most egalitarian country in terms of income inequality in Latin America. And, um, but it has an amazing history and again, it has a very large um, Christian population. According to a, a number of different outlets, 84% of the country is Christian, even though the 44% is Roman Catholic, 37% Protestant, and um, you know other kinds of flavors of Christianity. But... Um, the gang-related violent crime is escalating. And so, again, what happens is we're living in a, in a broken world. But back to that subject of God's goodness. Earlier I was talking about the goodness of God, and I want to sort of return to that subject. But again, I want to invite you to call 303 873 1935, that's the number. And I talked about the fact that the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble, that he, that his love endures forever. And in Ephesians chapter um, 
2, verse 10, it says, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The good God has prepared us to do good things. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So God continues to do his good work in us. And even in times of trouble, God is working for our good. In that most famous passage of Scripture in Romans eight twenty eight, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. So the Lord, according to the scripture, is good. He's good to all, even in times of trouble. He's begun a good work in us, and we'll see it through to the end. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. And... um In the Bible, um, one of the, the most telling reasons why we trust the Bible and why we believe that it is important to trust the Bible is when we ask and answer the most simple question possible, and that is, what did Jesus believe about the, the Scripture? So when we examine the way Jesus viewed the scripture, this should reinforce our confidence because Jesus said that the word of God is true. In John 17, 17, in that high priestly prayer, he, he prayed, sanctify them or set them apart or separate them, sanctify them by your truth, your word. Is truth. Jesus also said the scriptures could not be broken in John chapter 10, verse 35. And so it's clear from the statements that Jesus makes that he believes the Bible is true. That it's true, that it is, and that it cannot be broken. In other words, that once God says something, um, it, by, by virtue of the fact that he said it, becomes true. Even scholars who don't believe that the Bible is inerrant realize that that was the belief of Jesus. Kenneth Cancer, uh, can't, can't, cancer, not cancer like the disease, but K-A-N-T-Z-E-R, writes of these people. He says, quote, H.J. Cadbury who was a Harvard professor and one of the more extreme New Testament critics of the last generation, once declared he was far more sure as an historical fact that Jesus held to the common Jewish belief of an infallible Bible than that Jesus believed in his own messiahship. Adolf Harnack, greatest church historian of modern times, insists that Christ was one with his apostles, the Jews, and the entire early church in complete commitment to the infallible authority of the Bible. Pause. In, 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 uh, in, in 
Kenneth's uh, quote. Again, he says it's true. He says it can't be broken. And then I'm continuing the quote. He says, quote, John Knox, author of what is perhaps the most highly regarded recent life of Christ, states that there can be no question that this view of the Bible was taught by the Lord himself. And that's from Harold Lenzel, who was the editor of the church's worldwide mission. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. Again, Got a couple of lines open if you'd like to call, 303-873-1935. If Jesus knew the scriptures contained errors, but taught the people that they were error-free, he was a deceiver. This would make Jesus guilty of lying, whatever his motives may have been. It would prove that we can neither trust him or the scriptures. So did Jesus know that the scriptures contained errors? Apparently not. If the Bible contains factual errors of which Jesus didn't know, then it affects the way we view him. You mean there's something that Jesus didn't know that he should have known? If he were ignorant of this fact, then it's not possible. Well, the, it would be, I should put it a different way. If he was ignorant of this fact, then it, it's possible that he could be ignorant of other facts. John Warwick Montgomery writes in his book, God's Inerrant Word, he says, logically, if the Bible is not inerrant and Jesus thought it was, he can hardly be the incarnate God he claimed to be and for whom the same claims are made by his apostles. Had he been mistaken on this point, the church could well ask whether any single teaching of Jesus on any subject, including the way of salvation, might not also reflect his sincere misunderstanding. A God of this kind, even if he were indeed divine, would do us no more good than a non-God, for in neither case could we confidently rely upon his teachings, that from John Warwick Montgomery. <clears throat> so that's another word that we use a lot, that word inerrant. And you may be unfamiliar with that word, but it's a word that speaks not just of the authority and the integrity but that it is without error. The Bible is fundamentally without error. The only alternative that fits the facts is that Jesus taught the inerrancy of the Bible because he knew it was true. So inerrancy is the idea that the Bible is true. But how far does that truth extend? Well, I'll talk a little bit about that, but you can call me, 303-873-1935. I'll be right back. I'm bringing in a brand 
Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. The number is 303-873-1935. 303-873-1935. And I was talking about the word inerrancy. And that word um, is basically, in, in a way, a new term. And by that, I mean it's a, it's a word that was coined, well, in the last hundred years. But it, it describes a true concept. Inerrancy or infallibility means, as my friend um, Norm Geisler would say, he, he, the way he would put it is that when all the facts are known about the Bible in the original autographs will prove itself to be without error in all matters that it covers, including theology, history, science, and all other disciplines of knowledge. So the biblical doctrine of inerrancy is understood with some qualifications. Inerrancy only covers the original writings of the authors of the scripture. There's no claim that the various copies of the manuscripts made throughout the years are inerrant. Inerrancy extends to the writings of the different authors, not the writers themselves. So the finished product is error-free, not the men who wrote the documents. So the doctrine of inerrancy allows for the Bible to be written in non-technical descriptions. We have to allow for a biblical writer to explain a natural event from the point of view of the observer. Like, again, he saw the sun go down. Well, we know from an astronomical standpoint and a celestial standpoint that the sun is rotating, that the earth is rotating, that the sun doesn't literally go down. It's an idiomatic expression. We don't need to assume the writer is making a scientific statement about the nature of the universe when you say the sun came up or the sun went down. It allows for different details. The doctrine of inerrancy also allows for different writers to describe the same events with different details. So the Gospels record many of the same events with explanations that don't match word for word. These explanations aren't contradictory. They merely emphasize different details. So holding to an inerrant Bible allows for pictorial language and even figures of speech. Interpreting the Bible literally doesn't rule out figurative language or metaphorical language or poetic language when it's called for, or even what we might call apocalyptic language. So the Bible uses literary devices for metaphor, simile, hyperbole to make a point. Truth can be communicated even when you use figures of speech. So the doctrine of inerrancy doesn't demand that an adherence to the rules of grammar. There are examples of biblical writers breaking the strict rules of grammar to emphasize certain points. The book of Revelation, for instance, is filled with some, with lots of examples. Many Ancient as well as modern writers employ this technique to emphasize a point. So 
the writers of scripture should not be denied normal literary use. But we live in a time, we live in a time when people shrug their shoulders, when they're confronted with error. And like Pilate, they say, well, what is the truth? Postmodern man says nothing is true. Or perhaps, well, there might be truth, but we can't know it. We've grown accustomed to being lied to. And many people seem comfortable with the false notion that maybe the Bible's lying to you as well. Well, guess what? I've devoted my life to asking and answering that question. Is the Bible true? Is it really true? Is it true in every way that it could possibly be true? So for the person who says, well, the Bible contains errors. So the doctrine of biblical inerrancy is really important, perhaps for this most important reason, because the truth really does matter. I'm trying to remember who it was who said it. Um, Maybe it might have been my friend Lee Strobel, who said something to the effect that truth matters and that that the truth is that there's more to matter than that or, there, or there's more to the universe than than just matter oh he said something like that he discovered that there's more to matter than just matter or matter isn't all that matters oh by the way um lee strobel's documentary film is playing at several movie theaters tonight on um, The Case for Heaven. Just thought I'd let you know. And uh, I know it's going to be playing like at the AMC 24 and I think a couple of our other uh, movie theaters, but check your local listings, The Case for Heaven. So point, truth matters. And I, I was thinking about The Case for Heaven because Lee tells the story of about 10 years ago. We've been friends for many, many years, but 10 years ago, he almost died. And so he wanted to know, again, is there evidence that life continues after death? And when he started to do research and writing into this subject, he found out that there were more than 500 medical um papers that had been written asking and answering the question about evidence for life after death. And so does the Bible tell us things that we could only get from the Bible, a revelation from God about how we got here, why we're here, how do you explain the human condition? How do you explain the problem of sin and evil? How do you explain the, the, the reality of this person, Jesus, who lived and died and came back to life? And so, again, concerning this thing, this book, this Bible, and Jesus' belief about at least the Old Testament and the revelation of the Scripture being true 
and cannot be broken. This is a statement that he's making concerning the revelation of the word of God. Because the Bible speaks of the character of God, and it's foundational to our understanding of everything that the Bible teaches. So if we ask and we answer the question about all of those things, how we got here, why we're here, how you explain reality, how you explain your life and what happens when you die. And so there are lots of really, really good reasons to believe in biblical inerrancy. 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Alex, welcome to the program. Alex. So do did we lose him, Jim? Oh, we only have a minute. Well, why don't you tell me what you want to ask me, and then that way I'll have something to think about. I can't hear him, Jim. All right, we'll wait till after the break. So, till, till we come back from the break. But the Bible itself claims to be perfect. In Psalm 19, verse 7, it says, And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. That's Psalm 12, 6. The law of the Lord is perfect, Psalm 19, 7. Every word of God is pure, Proverbs 35. These claims of purity and perfection are absolute statements. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci, 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Alex, now let's see if we can talk with you. Hey, Gino, thanks for taking my call. Hey, you're welcome. Uh, so I studied theology at Colorado Christian University, and so I'm um, fairly familiar with the inerrancy conversation. But I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on one sort of question that I've heard posed, and I'm kind of not remembering the, um, yeah, biblical, biblical answers to it, right. um, is um, what do you do with the different presentations of Holy Week between the Synoptic Gospels and John? As I understand, they, they kind of present some of the events as occurring on different days, maybe? I think that there's an argument that that's true, that they are are uh, being presented on different days. But I would go with Norm Geisler's explanation of that. And that is, no, um, they're, they're describing the same event, but from a different perspective. Now, it, it, and, and that the perspective doesn't reach to the idea that they're actually claiming different days. Now, I had a conversation with him about this. And, and I said, um, are there unsolved mysteries for you <laughs> that even that, that you, you even say, Hey, I don't, um, I'm not, I'm not sure about this. And he, he said that there were about four of them. And I think that this might be one of them that he hasn't been able to resolve, but what he said was inerrancy or infallibility means that when all the facts are known in the Bible, in the original autographs, it's going to be proven to be without error in, in what it's covering. 
theology, history, science. So to your question, it, it, it's, it's that criticism. Are these are two different writers claiming two different dates or two different time periods for the passion? And, and, and again, when we say it means that when all the facts are known. Now, I'm willing to concede that I don't know all of the facts in every instance under every circumstance. And are there sometimes information that's given to us that changes the way we process the information that we have? And, and, and you, since you went to CCU, you, you know there's examples like that, like Assyria. Remember, there were years when people didn't even believe that they existed until archaeology proved it to be true. So the inerrancy only covers the original writings. Um, are, it doesn't extend to the various uh, copies. And some people will, will say, then what makes inerrancy inerrancy since it's, it's uh, theoretically impossible since we don't have the original writings to, right. to, uh, to make this claim? And the, the way that I would answer that is that even though we don't have the autographs, do we have something that represents the truth? In other words, is there? Do we have every? Do we have good reason to believe that 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 the manuscripts that we do have and the revelation that we've received, or if people don't really believe it is a revelation, but I do, is it substantially correct? And and I I think that the answer is yes. Okay. So, <clears throat> is is there a difference between substantially correct and inerrant? Though, if the inerrancy only applies to the original autographs. Well, here's what I would I would go with. I would go. Okay, let's talk about the scope. Is what you're talking about the scope? Even in in what might be argued um, the differences of, of perspective, if you will, um, you know, does, does it allow different details? Remember I made that argument, the doctrine of inerrancy allows for different writers to describe the same event with different details. Right. It, so, so in the different details, what you bring up, both writers describe a passion, they describe a death, and they describe a resurrection. And so for, for some people, they go, so you're willing to swallow the, the camel, you, you strain at the gnat of, of the different perspective, and then what, but what they wind up doing is then saying, well, because there is this discrepancy or what appears to be a discrepancy, then I'm going to literally throw the, the baby out with the bathwater and I'm going to uh-huh. I'm going to deny the passion and I'm going to deny the resurrection. And mm-hmm. so so I am willing to concede that there are things that I don't have a good answer for yet. <laughs> sure, sure. But that those things are so small as to be, in my own way of thinking, insignificant compared to 
what the revelation does present powerfully. Yeah. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So, but back to your original point. What then, or why then, does this become such an important topic? Why is it important to believe in biblical inerrancy? And for me, the the most compelling argument is because Jesus believed it. Jesus right. believed it. So when I go, you know, Jesus believed it, but he probably was mistaken. That's that to me is an odd, odd view, um, one that I can't embrace. Or when people will will say to me, you know, the reason why Jesus had 12 apostles and none of them were women is he was bound by the cultural construct. And I go, Jesus doesn't strike me as that kind of a guy who is bound by a cultural construct, that there's got to be another reason why he did what he Mm. did. Mm -hmm. And so the Bible, in my view is a reflection of its author. All books are. Mm -hmm. So if the Bible is a a reflection of its author and I go, if, and I really do believe that the, that the Holy spirit superintended this book, I believe that that's possible without denying the human instruments. If I believe that the Bible was written by God himself, as he worked through human authors in a process called inspiration, and as you know, inspiration is different from inerrancy, but in sure. 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all scripture is God-breathed, which seems to, in its context, mean exhaled. It, it's, it's giving us the idea, it, the, the way that I would put it is, if, if, if you're talking about something and you said, I heard it from his mouth. I heard it from his own mouth. Let me give you a kind of, of an illustration. When I was with the FBI, I was um, with the director. And on the director's desk was a copy of the warrant authorizing the tapping of Martin Luther King's phone. Okay. okay. So I'm, I'm looking at this and I, I said to the director, why do you keep that? on your desk. And he said, because I want to constantly remind myself of the authority and power and how it can be abused. And Mm. I, I'm thinking about that because of today being the anniversary of his, of his assassination. Uh, I see. So that's my point. In other words, well, how do you know that that letter is on the desk? Because I saw it myself. Uh Uh-huh. So that's what this, I think, means. God breathed. He's saying it himself. So if you believe in a God who can create the universe, could he actually write a book and then protect that book? And is it capable of being a perfect book? In my view, the answer is yes. Yeah. But I I concede that there's some interesting things that we have to wrestle with. So thanks for calling. Yeah, thanks for your time. Thank you. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.